Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. What a privilege we have this morning to open God's Word. We're in a series right now called Glory. It's one of those words that we use a lot in church, but we may have a hard time defining. And so I'm going to give you the definition of glory as based on both Old Testament and New Testament uses of that word. It means the heaviness of God, His weight, His worth, His brilliance, His radiance, His splendor and majesty, His reputation, His exaltedness, His dignity, His excellence. That is what we mean when we use the term glory applied to God. And this series is all about God revealing his glory to us. In fact, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses is up on the mountain, and this is his ask of God. He says, God, please show me your glory. He wants to know God. I'm reminded of another time in Scripture when something similar to this happened. When Jesus walked the earth, he took three of his disciples, again, up into a mountain And there he was transfigured in front of them. He became as bright as lightning, is what the scripture says. He was transformed in front of them. And they were up in the mountain, and they beheld his glory. They got to see him, a little glimpse of who he is. I wonder if you want to experience God's glory today. His weight, his excellence, his splendor, his light. So here we are in the book of Exodus toward the end. And there's the scene laid out in front of us of this nation of Israel that is coming from Egypt on their way to the promised land, the land that we now know as Israel. A journey that should have taken three weeks instead took 40 years because of their sin. So this infant nation of Israel was beginning to learn how to relate to the God of the universe. They were being taught how to rightly worship the Lord God. And that God had expectations on their lives for the way that they were to live differently than the nations that were all around them. They were to be unique. And so the book of Genesis ends with this family of 70 people, the family of Jacob, going into Egypt because of a famine. They were out of food. 430 years later, they emerge from Egypt as a tiny nation of about 3 million people. And now they're being called to serve and represent the true and living God, a God they don't truly know yet. And so they had some learning to do. And part of that learning was having to do with the severe consequences of sin and disobedience before a holy God. You see, God was giving them clear and direct commands, which they were beginning to repeatedly develop a reputation for disregarding or modifying for their own purposes or complaining to God. And this continually stirred up God's anger. And when people make God angry, there are always consequences. If I can put it to you this way, sin always has consequences. Now Moses has this privileged position. He's up in the mountain. He's tasted and seen a glimpse of God's glory and his brilliance and his beauty. And we're told in the Bible that God talked with Moses as a man talks with his friend. That's the level of incredible favor and intimacy that Moses enjoyed with the God of the universe. And there's this 
kind of ecstasy in Moses' soul in this mountaintop experience. That's why he asks to see God's glory. And I wonder, have you come to the place in your life when you realize that nothing will satisfy you but God himself? Only God can meet the longings of the human heart. Do you long for God like that, to really know him, to be so close to him that you can have unbroken fellowship with him? That is what worship is. It's a passion for more and more of God. You can't get enough of him. That's what we want in our souls. King David wrote about something similar in his experience and his desire to know the living God. He said in Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to behold your power and your glory. David wanted to experience the weight and the brightness and the goodness of God. So we come back to this passage in Exodus 34. You already saw it on the intro video, but I want to read it again because this is our passage for this entire series. Exodus 34, the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. This is God's self-revelation to Moses. This is how God chose to reveal himself. And today's focus for our sermon today is going to be this little phrase, slow to anger. Some of your translations might say long-suffering. Slow to anger. God revealed himself to Moses as a God who is slow to anger. Now Moses, by this time, has already experienced the anger of God on more than one occasion. In fact, from the very first time uh, Moses met with God at the burning bush, do you remember God became angry with Moses because he kept on throwing up these excuses? Well, I I stutter, I can't talk well, I can't go back to Pharaoh and and lead the people out out of slavery. And God became angry with him. And then there was the incident last week, Pastor Don preached about this, the golden calf that the people were worshiping. It made God angry. And then there was the frequent complaining of the Israelites. So Moses had been exposed to God's heart, and he's learning that though God is slow to anger, though God is incredibly patient, he will indeed express his anger when people break his commands. Now, God is not some kind of irrational, impulsive being who loses his temper with people over minor infractions. God's wrath is not this reckless rage or uncontrollable anger or senseless fury or unjust vengeance. No, the wrath of God is a precise and controlled response to the belittling of his holiness by sinners. And so we know that God is incredibly patient. That is laid out for us time and time again in Scripture. And so this is a patient anger. But his patience does have a limit. And if we fail to respond appropriately to God's commands within the timeline that he sets, we will experience his anger. And God never pours out his anger arbitrarily. There's always a warning. There's always a clear statement of what God expects. That's how he rolls. I want you to think for a moment about your own experience on this earth with anger. Either the anger that you have expressed towards somebody else or several somebody else's, or the anger that you've received coming from somebody else. Because many people have trouble reconciling in their minds a God who displays anger. 
Because most of what we know on this fallen earth is sinful human anger. We have virtually no frame of reference in our mind for holy, righteous, deserved anger. And we tend to fall on extremes when it comes to thinking about God's anger because either we're going to downplay the anger of God and not want to think about it and prefer to think of a God who is some kind of doting grandfather up in the sky, more like Santa Claus. Or on the other extreme, we think of God as this wild God with a lightning bolt in his hand who just can't wait to see you mess up so he can strike you. And some of you have that view of God. You think God is angry all the time with you. And you think the bad things that happen in your life are because God's angry with you. He's mad at you. He wants to get back at you or something like that. Both of those views I've just presented, by the way, are wrong. What is true is what Pastor Don spoke to us last week. He said that we tend to only want to focus on the attributes of God that we think are to our benefit. His love and faithfulness, his mercy, his kindness, those things are easy to talk about. No one gets bent out of shape when you talk about those things. But talk about the justice of God or the wrath of God. And some of you are already feeling a little bit uncomfortable this morning because anger triggers people. And the anger of God is something we would rather not talk about After all, we reason that we want to make God appealing to those who don't yet know him. We wouldn't want to offend anyone. But I want you to think this kind of logic through for just a moment. We seem to want to withhold the full character of God from people who desperately need the salvation of Jesus until we can paint some kind of a rosy picture of God for them. And hopefully they'll like us and they'll like our programs and they'll like our charisma and our building so much that they'll want to come to Jesus. And then sometime down the road, maybe later, we'll tell them what God is really like. My friends, Almighty God does not need you or your ministry to run a PR campaign for him. He does not need your help with branding. He does not ask us to make excuses or explain away difficult truths in his word or in his character. He has nowhere given us permission to edit or withhold anything about him in order to make him more appealing to people. Yet churches all over this continent are doing just that and they're falling flat on their faces, distorting the gospel, trying to make God into some kind of kinder, gentler, more inclusive God, you know? Because the old-fashioned God is just so harsh, and he doesn't seem to fit with our modern-day hypersensitivities. So you see, what ends up happening is we edit our view of God to suit our preferences, and what we do is we literally rip pages out of the Bible. I don't like that part of God. I'm going to rip that. I don't want to think about that one. I'm going to rip this part of the page out because that doesn't suit how I want to think about God. And the result of such editing is what I call a a pansified version of God. I just made that word up. You turn God into a pansy who only thinks like you, who only prefers the things that you want, who only will do things the way that you want them to be done. That's a God made in your image. Whereas we are made in God's image and we are responsible for how he has revealed himself to be. Some of you know that I've done a lot of worship training in my life, taught a lot of young leaders how to lead worship, and I always instruct them to read scripture when they lead worship. But you know what I've seen happen? And I was tempted toward this in my younger days as well. I would read a portion of the Psalms, for example, that talk about all these uh, praiseworthy attributes of God. And then the next part of the Psalm goes into the destruction of God's enemies or the anger of God. We just stop reading before we get to that part. Because why would we do that? Well, we just don't want people to get the wrong idea about God. What? 
Who gave us that kind of permission? Who are we helping by doing that, right? We have to understand something about God. There is a delineation. There is a critical delineation between how the anger of God is expressed toward people who are in his family and those who are children of this world. I want to illustrate this for you. It's all about whether you are in a loving relationship with God or not. This represents the kingdom of this present world. Those who hate God, those who want nothing to do with Jesus, those who stand in the way of the gospel, don't want his truth being taught in our school systems, all the rest. That is the world system. And this is the kingdom of light. This is those of us who have come into a saving faith of the Lord Jesus. We will experience the anger of God differently depending on which family we are in. I want us to understand that there is a critical delineation. If you are in the family of God, you're at peace with God. Jesus' blood has covered you and forgiven you of your sins. When we experience the anger of God over here, it's the discipline of God. God can be disappointed with the things that we do. He wants to steer us onto the right path. Sometimes we do experience the anger of God, but it is about relationship. It's about restoring relationship and bringing us back into the truth. If you're over here, when you experience the wrath of God, it is going to be a final judgment on your soul for all eternity. There's a big, big difference. We have to understand it's going to depend what what family you are in as to how you experience the anger of God. I'm going to give you a couple examples in the Old Testament of what it's like to experience the anger of God within the right context of a covenant relationship. Psalm 78. This is when Israel was going astray as they often did. All they gave him was lip service, it says. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They did not keep his covenant. Yet he was merciful and forgave their sins and did not destroy them all. Many times he held back his anger and did not unleash his fury. For he remembered that they were merely mortal, gone like a breath of wind that never returns. This is an example of how God's people made him very angry, and yet he did not unleash his full wrath on them because they were the people he loved and made a covenant with. Psalm 103, another example. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Do you recognize that verse? That's carbon copy out of Exodus chapter 34. And we'll see this many times in the Old Testament particularly. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. And so, yes, we as children of God can do things sometimes that make God angry, but that does not mean he no longer loves us. We have to get this right in our heads because many of us cannot understand or get our head around an idea of a God who is both loving and can also be angry toward the people he loves. If you have children, you should understand this. Do you love your children? Do they do things that make you angry? Right? God has 8 billion people on this planet right now. 8 billion souls. And there's probably about 7 billion of them who have rejected Christ and persist in breaking God's laws. Shouldn't God be angry about that? All the selfishness, all the murder that's going on, the wars, the lies, the immorality of this world. Should he not? It says in Psalm chapter 7, God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. If a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. 
You see, sin makes God angry. And we've got to be okay with that. Do not deny the right of Father, Son, and Spirit to be angry about whatever he decides to be angry with and with whatever force he decides to put behind that anger. He is the sovereign God of the universe. In fact, God would not at all be just if he simply turned a blind eye to evil. He will see to justice, but he's also patient and slow to anger. There's our phrase again, right? He's slow to anger. And we know that the justice that God is going to hand out to the punishment of evildoers rarely comes in our time frame. He's slow to anger in a way that you and I cannot possibly be. But God has decreed that every sin requires payment. That's why God established the sacrificial system. Every sin must be paid for in blood. And we are introduced to this concept in the book of Exodus, which is this idea of blood atonement for sin. You see, God's righteous anger for sin can only be satisfied by the shedding of blood, meaning the death of the one who did the sin, or a suitable substitute who can take the place of the guilty. And so animals are introduced into the sacrificial system to represent the death of an innocent on behalf of the guilty. And this is etched into the, the Hebrew mindset for generations. God's word says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so we see all throughout the Bible this theme that God requires payment or atonement for sin. What else does the Bible say about this? Romans chapter 5. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Colossians chapter 3, so put to death the sinful things, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of the world. Notice the distinction again here. The anger of God is coming. On who? Not us, not on Christians, not on those who have received the forgiveness of Christ. The anger of God has already been fulfilled for us when Jesus died on the cross. The anger is toward those who refuse Christ, those who refuse to repent of their sin. And that would include false Christians who were never truly saved in the first place because their lives have proved that they have not repented of their sins. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are alive or dead when he returns, we can live with him forever. That is the good news of being in Christ. You see, Christ took the wrath of God for us so that we will never have to experience God's punishment for our sins. And I want to be so clear about this. If you are born again, if you are a child of God, you will never experience the wrath of God for your sin. Never. 
When we experience the anger of God in his kingdom, it is discipline that moves us in the right direction, gets us back on the right path. But we will never experience the eternal wrath of God because Jesus paid it all for us. And here's what John chapter 3 says about that. Anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who does not obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's wrath. I want to give you an example from a song that we often sing here at MVF. It's called In Christ Alone. You might recognize this song. One of the verses says this, In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. You see, we too easily gloss over God's wrath when it comes to the crucifixion of our Lord. But it's all through the Bible. Even back in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus came to this earth. This is a prophetic scripture about the Messiah. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. Who's he? Jesus. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Unjustly condemned, he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Understand, God, as the counsel, Father, Son, and Spirit, agreed that this would be the way. Jesus is not an unwitting victim at the cross. He was doing this in full agreement with the counsel of God as they agreed what would happen. You see, the Trinity had to get involved in taking, this, taking care of this problem of sin. This is a God-sized problem, and no human could ever deal with it. Only God himself could do it. What does 2 Corinthians say about this? 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he knew no sin, he was perfect, to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what's going on at the cross. So let me ask you this morning, what does the full and final wrath of God look like for those who are in this kingdom? Revelation chapter 20 indicates what is going to happen at the very end, at the final judgment. It says that the devil and his angels, the demons, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And then it says that death and the grave are going to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And then it says everyone whose name is not in the book of life will also be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That is what the wrath of God is going to look like. Eternal conscious torment. That's the wrath that is to come. Who experiences the wrath? Those who refuse to turn to Christ, refuse to come to the refuge of Christ to be saved. Here's the question to ask. Because the good news of Jesus is today is that you might have walked into these doors this morning as an enemy of God, but you can leave as a friend of God. You can leave as a member of God's family, dearly loved child of God. That's the gospel. And I want us to understand this morning that we have to preach the bad news before we can get to the good news. Why? 
because we've got to talk about the anger of God regarding sin in order for the sinner to understand their need for a Savior. Otherwise, what need is there for a Savior? To be saved from what? The answer is saved from the wrath of God, which I rightly deserve because of my sin. Only when you acknowledge that you stand rightly condemned to an eternity in the lake of fire are you ready for the good news of the rescue of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that good news is that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin in his own body on the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus to crush Jesus. And that terrible moment that we read of in scripture when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sky went dark, and there was a great earthquake, we read. And for this brief moment, and our brains will never be able to truly comprehend this, God the Father turns his face away from God the Son because of the sin that was now upon him. The eternal love and fellowship that Father, Son, and Spirit had always had together from eternity past was shattered for this moment. And God punished the Son with the full fury of his wrath because of my sin. And because of your sin. That's what's going on on the cross. Don't fall for this emotional picture of the cross. Oh, there's a poor man being whipped to death. And we're supposed to feel sorry for him because he's in so much pain. That's not what's going on on the cross. It is the warrior, King Jesus, the King of glory, doing spiritual battle on your behalf. Willingly accepting the indignation of God for your sin and my sin. So that we who believe in him will never perish under God's wrath, but have eternal Life. Glory to God. Are you understanding the weight, the wonder, the sacredness of what Jesus did for us at the cross? Don't gloss over this. And we do gloss over it when we soft sell it and we try to candy coat it. Because of what Jesus endured, God says he has now elevated Christ and given him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, the anger of God has been satisfied for those who are in Christ. It's the glory of the gospel. Our freedom has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. We who accept Jesus will never have to experience God's wrath because Jesus paid our sin debt with his own precious blood. And that is why we worship Jesus. And that is why we should be delighted to lay down our lives before him in gratitude and service as long as we live on this earth. But the wrath of God is still being stored up right now. But for an entirely different reason. It's for those who reject Christ. That is what the condemnation is now based on. And that's my great concern when I look at this room right now. I'm going to requote to you John 3.36. I've already mentioned it, but I want to mention it again. Anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's wrath. Here's the thing. You cannot get people found until they know they're lost. You can't get people saved until they know what they're being saved from. And the testimony of the Bible is like this. It says in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They've fallen short of his weight, of his worth, of his brilliance, of his excellence. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It is eternal separation from God. 
Where would we be without the mercy of God? Romans chapter 2. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, and instead live lives of wickedness. I'm going to ask the band to return right now to the stage. We're talking about the wrath of God, and the Bible says that this wrath is being held back for a time so that more people can be saved because of God's loving mercy. I want to ask you today, are you ready for that mercy today? The Bible says God does not want anyone to perish, but rather everyone to come to repentance. It also says that today is the day of salvation. In other words, it's urgent. Don't put it off. If you feel something stirring in your heart this morning, it's very likely that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, telling you you need to come and be reconciled with God. You need to come experience peace with God, and that can only be done through the blood of Jesus shed on your behalf. Because God is slow to anger. He has been patiently waiting for you to come to Jesus until this very day. 1,990 years ago, Jesus rose from the grave. How's that for slow to anger? He has given that many years for humanity to repent of its sin and turn to Jesus. God has been patiently waiting for you to this very day. October 22nd, 2023 could be the day that you change the eternal address that you spend eternity in. That's the glory of the gospel. Will you accept that salvation today? I'm pleading with you, do not delay when King Jesus calls your name. This great invitation, the most important decision that you will ever make in your life on earth to receive what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross so that you can be welcomed into his family as a child of God. The Bible says whoever believed in him and received him has been given the right by God to be called children of God. This is the glorious gospel that we preach. So we're going to move into a time of worship as a response to what we've talked about this morning. But I want to open up the invitation to you to receive Christ as your Savior today. When the gospel's been presented fully, I believe that many of you may need to respond this morning to the truth of this gospel. Maybe you've never heard it this way before. Maybe you've heard it a hundred times and for the first time something clicked in your head and it makes sense all of a sudden that you have a personal need for a Savior. There is a gap between you and God that you cannot fill. But Jesus did it for you. And so even as we sing this last song, I'm going to invite you to, to get out of your seat and come to the front, come forward, and I'd love to pray with you love to share with you how you can know that your sins are forgiven, how you can know that your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Isn't that an irony? We think of blood as dirty. We don't want that on us. And yet in God's economy, it is the blood that washes sin away. And you can have your sins forgiven today. And you can walk out of here being at peace with God. You can walk out of here knowing that you're in his family now. You've been transferred 
from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You can make that decision right now today. I just urge you, get out of your chair, even while we're singing this next song, and I'd love to pray with you as we do that. Let's sing together.